Hi, this is uh, Stavros Yanuka welcoming you back to Wise Words, the podcast where we discuss all things education with some of the world's leading thinkers and doers. Wise is an initiative of the Qatar Foundation dedicated to building the future of education through innovation. This episode is the third in a series of six that explore post-pandemic priorities for education around the world. As was the case with a previous episode featuring Rukmini Banerjee, CEO of Pratham Education in India, at the end of my conversation with our guest, I will be joined by Andrew Jack, Global Education Editor at the Financial Times, to reflect on the discussion and to exchange views on some of the other education issues that he is exploring. Before I introduce this episode, let me again remind our audience about why, when the world is still very much in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, WISE is choosing to focus on post-pandemic priorities. For a start, we spent most of 2020 doing an in-depth exploration of education responses to the pandemic, both through this podcast and our Education Disrupted Education Reimagined series of convenings and the ebook that came out of those discussions. All of that can be found on our website at www.wise-qatar.org. So we feel that we've covered this ground well. Moreover, despite the worsening situation in many parts of the world, we remain optimistic that the accelerating rollout of effective vaccines will see the world turning a corner in the not-too-distant future. And in our view, this is precisely the time to start thinking about and planning for what comes next. And there are a couple of questions that remain top of mind for us at WISE. The first set of questions revolves around how well we understand the scale of the challenge, both in terms of learning loss, but also in terms of issues to do with mental health and well-being, as well as the loss of the socializing functions of education. And as a follow-up to this, how well are policymakers and education leaders around the world preparing to address these challenges? The second set of questions revolves around the extent to which policymakers and education leaders are seizing the opportunity offered by this crisis to engage in meaningful and impactful changes to our education systems. There was, and still is, a lot of talk about the need to build back better. What does that look like in practice? And are we really building back better or simply trying to go back to business as usual? With that, let me now introduce the third part of our new series, post-pandemic priorities for education. China is the world's most populous country and its second largest economy. More importantly, current growth trends suggest that China is poised to overtake the US as the world's largest economy within the next six to seven years, a full five years earlier than expected. This relative acceleration in China's growth is largely due to its handling of the pandemic. While the city of Wuhan was the first major urban center in the world to experience the full force of the COVID-19 pandemic, timely and sustained action at both the local and national level saw China bring the pandemic largely under control within two to three months, enabling life and economic activity uh, to resume at close to pre-pandemic levels. More importantly, however, for our purposes, China has a long and rich tradition of formal education that can be traced all the way back to the Han Dynasty that governed China for around four and a half centuries from 206 BC to 220 AD. As China's economic and geopolitical clout continue to grow, so too will its societal and cultural influence 
including in the field of education, particularly if its approach to education is seen as an important contributor to its success. To help us navigate recent developments in China and to reflect on the post-pandemic priorities for education policy there, it's my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast another good friend of WISE, Berlin Fang. Berlin Fang is an education columnist whose major interests are faculty acceptance of educational technology, the diffusion of innovation, managed change, academic integrity, the ethnography of technology use in higher education, and cross-cultural comparisons of education. A native of China and a graduate of the prestigious Nanjing University, he is currently the Director of Instructional Design at Abilene Christian University in Texas. During our conversation, we discussed whether we had reached a transformative moment in China in terms of the adoption and widespread use of online learning technologies. What changes were there in public perception about online learning? The role of the private sector in China as a driver of innovation, whether the experience of the pandemic had prompted a rethink of China's high-stakes exam system, the priorities for teacher training in the post-pandemic era, and many more topics. With that, please join me in conversation with Berlin Fang. Berlin, welcome back to Wise Words. Good to see you again, Stavros. Uh, we really enjoyed talking last time. I'm, I'm so glad and I'm humbled to be asked back. You didn't kick me out, so that's a good <laughs> sign. Thank you. No, no, we, we, we absolutely would not want not do that, Berlin. And uh, yeah, it's great to see you. We were just uh, saying earlier that uh, uh, we last spoke in June. The pandemic was, I guess, you know, depending on uh, uh, which part of the world you're you're in and it's third or fourth month. Uh, and in some respects, here we are almost 12 months later, uh, still very much in it globally. But of course, some countries, China included, are in many respects already in a post-pandemic environment. So let me ask you first, reflecting back on our conversation last June, uh, we felt that uh, we might be in a transformative moment for online learning. And indeed, China has, in many ways, pioneered uh, many aspects of online learning. Now that we're in 2021, do you feel that this is still a transformative moment? And in particular, you know, what is happening in China? Has China reverted back to its sort of pre-pandemic system or have elements of, of the response stayed? I really think that China has been transformed quite a bit by the pandemic in education. But I have to give you a disclaimer first. I, uh, I'm living in the U.S. I've been watching what's going on there um, as an observer, as a constant um, thinker about online teaching. And I've been seeing uh, what China is doing, and I've been seeing what America is doing and the rest of the world by you know going to your sites, etc. What I found, the biggest transformation is China, the government is... Uh, placing high priority on uh, online teaching after the pandemic is kind of over for, for China, so to speak. Uh, the China has the new policy making online teaching one of the priorities for the national 14th uh, five-year plan. And they also have a vision for 2035, making online learning and uh, learning society one of their priorities. So I think that's a good sign. 
But I'm not at, as optimistic about how much transformation is going on at the school level. But sure, there are people who have learned a lot of tools. For instance, synchronous teaching using uh, Tencent meeting or Zoom at an earlier stage. Uh, but then, you know, there is a focus on moving back to uh, quote-unquote normal state. So I, I believe that people have gone back to the way they teach with um, some tools under their belt. So that's what I have observed going on. I think more needs to be done there in terms of professional development, in terms of deeper integration of technology into teaching, in terms of the whole thinking about online teaching and hybrid teaching or split uh, classrooms. These kind of things, they deserve more thinking and more attention to the best practices that's going on, that are going on in the field. Can, can you can you go a little uh, deeper on that? So what, what are some of, I mean, your, your uh, expertise is in instructional design tailored for online courses. Uh, and again, much of the discussion in 2020 was around, you know, how this would accelerate development. So what have you seen? I mean, not just in China, but around the world. What have you seen are, are some of the best ideas or practices that have emerged as a consequence of, of this acceleration? Yeah, I like the word acceleration because there are a lot of things, a lot of practices, a lot of uh, tools that we want people to consider prior to the pandemic. Um, but people have been hesitating about this. The pandemic actually uh, forced people to be using these tools, forcing people to consider these practices, forcing people to go to online teaching or hybrid teaching, whether they like it or not. So that's uh, unprecedented uh, access really matters. But I think learning is an ecology, okay? So we are not simply talking about the use of these tools to substitute another tool. We're not simply talking about the change of media only. We're also thinking about how, when tools are being used in teaching, it deeply transforms the way we teach. So I uh, keep thinking, as we discussed uh, in our last episode, that when we are talking about uh, online teaching or hybrid teaching, I usually consider the three M's. The, the, the message, what you are going to teach, the method, the pedagogical innovations that you could consider, and the the medium, I mean, the the, the method, that platform that you use, the tools that you use. So I really think that when we are talking about transformations, we should consider all the three, at least, at the very least. Uh, when tools in, enter into mm-hmm. uh, the sphere of teaching or learning, it changes things, okay? It is not necessarily just a substitute of one mode to another. You, you know that I am also a literary translator. Okay? Yeah. When I translate things from English to Chinese or from Chinese to, to English, it's not a word-for-word rendering. Otherwise, right. machines, machines could probably do a much better job. We are searching mm-hmm. for dynamic equivalents uh, of, of, of formalities. And that's something that I would uh, emphasize. I, I think that's uh, something that uh, I hope the ch- education, educators and educational researchers in China and elsewhere will continue to search for the best practices. How has um, you know public perceptions of online learning evolved through through the past year? What are you hearing, you know, particularly from parents uh, about online learning? I mean, some of them I'm sure see it as you know something of a lifeline, but also I think it's imposed you know significant burdens on parents as well. Absolutely. Uh, to a certain extent, parents have 
uh, being playing the role of teaching assistants because uh, the the younger kids, especially, they haven't developed the self regulation uh, and the self agency to be doing some of the things that the uh, teachers ask them to do. So some parents are greatly relieved uh, that things are going back to normal, and I think that that's natural. And uh, because people are busy and they have their own jobs, their lives. And they would rather that、uh, the, the kids can receive a better instruction in the classroom, which is understandable. But parents also discovered that the、uh, pandemic has opened up new doors for them.、Uh, the their kids can now receive instruction elsewhere. So that is、uh, eye-opening for many parents. In in China, many educational apps are being developed or being used、uh, all over the place. Uh, to help students learn, because sometimes parents feel that、uh, in-class teaching are not sufficient. In China, I think education causes a lot of people great anxiety because everybody has to go to the best school,、uh, whatever level that is. It, there, there's a huge, huge competition. When there's huge competition, people find ways to see whether they can help their kids get ahead, okay, of the cohort. So what that means is they just take advantage of the、uh, apps. That are available to help students learn, and to to、uh, provide remedial、uh, education. So this kind of educational technology、uh, or apps are booming in, in China right now, especially、uh, when they discovered that the country is、um, prioritizing this in the next five-year plan. So they know this is something that、uh, it is going to be、uh, that will be、uh, emphasized in the future. So. The parents, you know, see that opportunity、uh, there, and it opens new doors for many families that do not used to have good access. Because if you are in a poor、uh, school district、uh, in China, there are school districts as well. I mean, some places like Shanghai, Beijing,、uh, Guangzhou, they probably have、uh, very good schools, and you know, rich kids buy、uh, rich kids have parents buying houses near the schools, so they have they have better access. Now people realize that with an、uh, app, with a computer, with the internet access, they can get very good、uh, educational resources as well. So that is kind of liberating.、Uh, I hope that that's interesting because the the you know the, the nexus between the real estate market and、uh, and good schools is is not just the Chinese uh, uh, phenomenon; it's a global phenomenon. You know, but but it would be interesting to to observe whether indeed the growth in In edtech alternatives or or edtech support for education will you know will will break that uh, uh, that link. I have to say I'm I'm a bit skeptical <laughs> that, that that link will 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 ever break. But、um, let, let me go back to something that you said、uh, earlier, which is that in the in the in the current sort of five year plan, the one that was just endorsed, China is looking to. EdTech, in particular, to EdTech tutoring, EdTech、uh, remedial training, as you know, as an important resource. Is this is this viewed purely from a, a sort of educational standpoint, or do they see EdTech as a growth industry around the world and one that that you know China can play a a leading role in? I really think that、uh, the the phenomenon in China is very interesting.、Uh, the the educational technology companies. Are not necessarily started by somebody that work in the university who are unhappy with the way things are run, like, like、yeah. the way Blackboard or Canvas are started.、Uh, what what happens is people see 
there's going to be money there because there are lots, lots of kids who are creating lots of business opportunities. Yeah. So business entrepreneurs are starting this and they attract money. So for at this time, I think the, the market is very fragmentized and deregulated. You know, the, their focus right now is not necessarily education. Some of them just want to uh, increase their uh, customer base. So for the every dollar they get from a family purchasing an app, probably like uh, 80% or 85%, uh, I read, you know, from, from the internet, that um, goes to acquiring new customers. So not as much money has been spent on uh, developing educational products, not as much money has been spent on research. So that is a worry. I mean, if you just uh, let the businesses drive their transformation without a deeper integration with educational institutions, we are in trouble, okay? Because when the market is super uh, deregulated uh, in, in, in terms of this kind of uh, business startups, you will have you know, some bad players who just acquire lots of customers uh, earning lots of money. And one day you find themselves... Uh, you find them, you know, evaporated or run away or some someplace like that. So that is going to hurt the uh, the reputation of the industry, and that is also hurting the kids, the parents, everybody actually. So I I work in the U.S. and I just find that um, in the U.S. it's facing a very different ecology because it's uh, more edu- driven by schools, school districts, uh, institutions themselves. What kind of things they use? Of course, there are also players like you know uh, Blackboard, as, as, I, as I mentioned, or Quizlet, things like this. People started them; they want to make money. That's fair. But I mean, the 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 choices are driven more by institutions. Whereas in China, the choices are more by parents and students, and lots of individual players. It is very deregulated and fragmentized. However, mm-hmm. when the government start to control it, and then the haywire kind of situation just gets cooler, but uh, it does not necessarily get healthier. So it's uh, from haywire, it's probably evolves into hushed, okay, or just subdued. Mm. Uh, so we have a, a phrase in Chinese called, uh, if we just uh, let loose, things will just uh, go chaotic. If we just control, things are dead. So that's uh, what I have been hearing again yeah. and again. Uh, about the regulation and deregulation, uh, that kind of balance. It's it's a it's a tightrope to walk. I yeah. Tell you. No. No. And, that, and that's interesting. So I, I mean, if, if just to play devil's advocate for a moment and 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 make the case for uh, the, the free market and education. I mean, in China, you have you know you have a sort of a high stakes exam or exams that that really drive, I think, a lot of a lot of the motivation to 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 study and to improve and to you know, as well as of course cultural traditions and general sort of respect and embrace for for education but you have these high stakes exams and so you know the these players at least the ones that are succeeding must be adding some value because it will be it will be clear at a certain point whether you know what they're doing is 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 real versus they're just there you know uh, collecting subscriptions yes a- absolutely uh i I, I have to take back my words a little bit. I'm not saying that they're not uh, uh, adding value. They are adding value. But in the, in the, the context that everything adds value to uh, students having a higher chance of passing high-stake exams. So in that context, yes, it does. People just uh, pay money, not for fun, but to, uh, to 
get better prepared for Gaokao, the uh, yeah. high-stake exam, and whatever other exams they are facing. Actually, it's not just a college entrance exam, the Gaokao. Every step of the way from elementary school to middle school, even there, for that, there, there, there are high-stake exams. So people really want to be uh, better prepared for this. And so I, I think that um, these apps, the educational technology companies, play into that. They see the, the business opportunities there. So uh, basically everything just tries to help people to, to be better prepared for the exam, which is sad, to be honest with you, if uh, education is reduced to that, to this kind of high-stake uh, assessments. No, I, 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 I absolutely uh, uh, hear hear that argument. And and. The, the pandemic was was a, a moment uh, and and is still uh, you know a moment of of some sort of reflection for you know for, for many people around the world and and indeed many you know many policymakers you know we we keep hearing the phrase build back better as you know the the mantra for uh, what is going to follow post pandemic in China has there been any you know any debate any any rethink you know, of a system that that you know creates such high stakes, you know, in in the in the form of a few qualifying examinations, is is there any pushback that that you're uh, hearing about, or uh, you know, folks that you interact with to to say, hey, maybe we need to we need to rethink this system. Uh, I to be honest with you, I do not actually see that going on, at least uh, from what I observed, uh, because uh, people basically just return to the normal because the pandemic was uh, uh, under control pretty much sooner yeah. than um, what we expected. So I, I think the transformations, you know, touched people, but not in the sense that, you know, everybody is thinking that, oh, now we need to, to rethink that the Gaokao's system. Uh, of course, the discussions around that high-stake exam has been going on forever. Okay, it's still yeah. going on with or without the pandemic. So there are still discussions about what to test, but it's it's mostly it's a micro, it's a fine-tuning of things, you know, which subjects receive higher uh, weighting, which subjects receive lower weighting. This kind of discussions. Uh, I, unfortunately, do not see a lot of discussion about, you know, now what do we do about, you know, exams. But in the world, I, I think there, there are, there are talks about you know changing this high stake test in the U.S. It's actually happening, uh, as you probably have noticed that uh, AP exams, which is very high stake, they have changed their format uh, quite a bit. Okay, it used to include standardized tests, and last year I remember that AP exam uh, waived that uh, standardized testing portion and just uh, substituting it with an essay. Lots of universities have gone to test optional including the Ivy League schools. So I think that's a huge, huge change. And I don't know whether people have noticed the implication of that in, in the future, because the game has been changing quite a bit. Wait, what, what do you see as, the, as, as some of the implications of, of, of that change? I mean, do you think it will lead to a fairer uh, system of college admissions? You know, or, or are we going to find, which is what I worry about, that we're just going to find that Okay, you take away the standardized exam, then you have to emphasize, you know, what uh, you know what kids have done in 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 their schools, and and maybe some extra, you know, curricular or or other signals that they are, you know, ready ready to take the the next step. And what my concern is that you know in in that world again, the privileged are going to have a significant advantage 
uh, and at the same, but at the same time, you will have taken the one thing that the, you know, the underprivileged kids maybe a few of them could signal their their, their capacity by taking this this standardized exam. So, wh- what are you seeing, uh, Berlin, and what are your thoughts on on this? It's it's a it's a, a topic that's a worth another episode altogether. <laughs> it's yeah. a huge topic. Yeah, yeah. I, I see what you're saying. Uh, if you ask most Chinese, they would tell you that uh, the Gokou is a fair system compared to many other options. If you just re- remove Gokou from the equation, then people can cheat very easily in terms of essay uh, writing, in terms of extracurricular activities. The poor kids will be put at a greater disadvantage. Okay, so many people tend to think in China, and I used to think that way as well. That uh, uh, Gokou is a fairly fairly uh, fair system, um, but if you just uh, put all the eggs in the one basket, uh, the Gokou, it is really distorting education. And I really think that some kind of changes has to be made. I don't know exactly know how, but I, I know it is not. It is not good because people are teaching to this test. Uh, Everything is aligned toward the direction of the test, of passing the test. And people just do not get educated. It's just like, you know, schooling is uh, kind of detached from education. And I find that to be, to be very sad. Um, I personally, I, I actually, I, I don't know whether I benefited from the system or not. Uh, I, I didn't take the, the call call when everybody else does. Because I was uh, one of the top, uh, you know, ten percent with the students who are eligible to go to uh, one college, we call it Bao Song, our, uh, our recommendation system. So I just took advantage of that and I went into it. That that, that means, you know, I have uh, av- very high average um, scores when I was at school. That is a system that that should work. What that does is that places greater power uh, in the hands of the teachers. Uh, in the in the hands of the of the schools, I I think we should continue to reinforce that, uh, give uh, teachers and the local schools greater say in what kind of students um, go into school. Instead of just using a single criterion, the uh, the test, a high sig test, to push everybody uh, to push everybody through that, uh, because that creates unfairness of all sorts. Uh, I I see I see what you're saying. I can see that if if the system is applied equitably in the sense that every school gets, you know, a certain allocation, then uh, which school you go to perhaps, you know, matters matters less or, or it may matter in a different way, meaning that, you know, a rural school uh, will have, you know, its top, you know, five, 10 percent also going the same as a as a, you know, as a school, say, in Shanghai. Whereas now I imagine the, the school in Shanghai you know, most of the kids who go there are, you know, well placed to do well in the exam, but the rural school maybe maybe less so. That's that's an interesting uh, interesting way to, to to think about it. One thing one thing I would add is that uh, I live in Texas, and I, I just found that Texas has a system that actually it's very thought provoking uh, because top ten uh, top like seven percent I don't know whether that's still the criterion are automatically. Uh, eligible to be enrolled, uh, admitted to one of the state's public schools. Okay, that creates a, a bit of a fairness because whether you're in a bigger school district or in a small district, you have an equal chance. Yeah. I was I was going to ask you, I mean, you know, we, we, we've been talking about, you know, access now to, to, to higher education. And 
you know, of course, one of the, you know, one of the arguments for, you know, for, for a more equitable uh, education system and, and, and ultimately a more equitable society is to, is to maybe expand the opportunities for further uh, education that are available so that it's, you know, it's not just college, you know, or university that, uh, that can offer people pathways uh, to success. And of course you have, you know, systems um, like uh, Germany and, and, and some other European countries where, you know, vocational training uh, is technical and vocational training is seen as a viable, you know, pathway to a, a good education and a good, good career. There are reports that China is also, you know, pushing towards some form of technical and vocational uh, training. Is that is that something you're hearing? And and if so, what you know, what role, for example, will you know digital technology play in uh, in in facilitating this? That's a that's a great question. Uh, I actually uh, have been talking for many years in my writing that uh, not everybody has to go to the top schools because there are so many options available. And education is a long journey. It's a marathon. It's not a hundred meter uh, run. So I, I think there is there should be different pathways for people after the um, past high school. That is strategically um, being done in China. I mean, people have been emphasizing this for many years. But whether people listen, that's another issue. So it is more cultural. Uh, everybody wants to rise to the top. Okay, the universities every step of the way, uh, the top top school, the top university, the top graduate school, uh, because uh, everybody is perceiving perceiving the high, the best schools to be a golden ticket to a successful career. So I, I think the the entire philosophy has to change. Okay, um, people can have a perfectly happy life, you know, doing blue collar work. Many people can. I mean, very highly. I mean, you have to develop skills in everything that you do. That I, I, I have to say that um, you can rise to the top in every field that you have. Not everybody has to be a scientist. Not everybody has to be the best a writer, Nobel Prize winner. You know, there are lots of um, high-paying jobs that do not require a certificate from Beijing University or Tsinghua University, and people can be fine uh, with that. That that kind of culture, however needs a lot of change because in, I think one of the things with China is uh, you have to rise to the top. You have to be the best. It's very competitive. It's success-driven. And many, many middle-class parents right now are also uh, finding out that probably something is wrong with that. We probably need to uh, think more about happiness as well. So there are people talking about it, but not the uh, whole society response right now. It's just uh, pockets of people are talking about this and uh, the competition is still fierce. The culture is still success driven. Okay. Just because the sheer size of the population, I, I think it creates a mentality of cutthroat competition every step of the way. It doesn't have to be that way. No, no, that's, and again, a very, we, we could again, devote a whole, uh, a whole episode to, uh, you know, discussions around, you know, what, what is actually the purpose of, of education and whether, I mean, it seems to me at the moment that a large part of our education investment and and uh, activity is is geared towards uh, signaling. You know, you you go to the right schools, you 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 get the right degrees, you get certain you know 
uh, doors opening up, uh, opening up for you. And it's, you know, it, it, it's not always the case that you're doing things because you're, you're, you're really learning or you, you even need some of that, uh, learning in order to, you know, to, to function in society. But again, it's, it's for a much, uh, it's a debate for, for another, for another podcast. You also mentioned that technology, how technology is played into this. I, I, I really think that uh, technology is probably going to change, going to be an accelerator of whatever change we're going to see. Because people have uh, seen that, you know, the, the real role models have been changing. Okay. You were saying that, uh, with with the TikTok or Instagram, there are successful people not going to the top universities, but they are doing very well for themselves. Okay, so I, I think there is a change in role models. Not necessarily all good, but some of these are good. Okay, so it, it is. So the internet is a is a accelerating the diversification of the values we hold about education. So that's that's one way that educational technology has been changing things, uh, and also there's a now better access for people, whether you are in a rural area in China uh, or in the bigger cities, you have the same access to certain things that you previously have never had, had never imagined. Yeah. I mean, since we're on the uh, subject of technology, I know that there's, for a number of years now, there's been a sort of a lot of excitement and, you know, apprehension about uh, the role of uh, artificial intelligence, the, the role that it can play, of course, in, in society, but also you know, specifically in, in education. And again, China is, you know, is a leader in the, in the field. Have you seen, you know, uh, the widespread adoption of AI or, or you know, are you, are you seeing, uh, you know, pockets of uh, AI being utilized in, in education? And if so, what, what's been, you know, what's been the effect? Yeah, I think China is uh, uh, doing very well for itself in terms of AI development uh, in in terms of its competition with the U.S. in artificial intelligence, but I haven't seen a lot of uh, adoption in education. Maybe I haven't noticed. I think sometimes the direction went wrong. Okay, they focus on you know using a camera to detect people's facial expressions to see how many people pay attention. Uh, I think that creates a big brother kind of uh, feeling for the students. Whereas um, I think artificial intelligence helped the teachers, you know, teach better, teach more efficiently, more effectively. Um, for instance, uh, here in the U.S., we could use uh, something like Grammarly to check grammar mistakes so that people just are, uh, the teachers are freed from the mundane task of checking people's grammar and punctuation, things like this. And the people use a Turnitin for plagiarism detection. Uh, that also take the time uh, uh, away from the, the teachers. Uh, they don't have to Google people's answers, say whether they have copied somewhere. So, uh, and and we use uh, something like lockdown browser to to check or lockdown monitor to check whether people have uh, logged away uh, to their task when during the exam things like this. That take away the artificial intelligence is uh, is helping the teachers actually doing a better job. So their time can be better spent giving feedback to students interacting with them. If artificial intelligence is used this way, rather than the kind of a surveillance uh, kind of uh, uh, approach, it will be better. You should not talk about artificial intelligence in terms of how you can better control somebody. Instead, you should think about artificial intelligence, how you can improve the livelihood, how you can improve the uh, in the job satisfaction for the people involved. If China is going in that direction, that would be great. I hope that people can think more about this. And also artificial intelligence, I hope, 
can be used to do um, data analytic about student learning to see the process of learning rather than see the results of how well somebody's doing or how poorly somebody has failed. So if, uh, if you just look through the data of their learning process, that means you know you use more technology, you get more data. Um, and that way you can see you know how many students get this question wrong, how many students get that question wrong. That way you know how the class is learning, where you need to adjust your teaching. This kind of a small data, I, 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 I'm a big advocate for small data rather than the, uh, the big data. I mean, by small data, I mean the data that is generated by technology or artificial intelligence that teachers can readily use and apply uh, in their teaching to improve their teaching, to improve student learning, things like that. Absolutely. And, 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 and again, I, I mean, I, I like that uh, the, the image of, of, of technology essentially liberating teachers to focus on the, the most value additive part of the job, which is the, the interaction with, uh, with students rather than the, you know, the grading of, of papers or the, you know, the, the correction of, uh, of, of grammar. Where, where do you see, just to sort of, because we're coming up to our, our time, but to sort of close off our discussion, where do you see teacher training going, you know, post-pandemic? I mean, we, again, I, I know in China, this, you know, it, it may be, it may be quite different, but, you know, we're hearing a lot of uh, reports from other parts of the world that, you know, teachers have, have suffered significant burnout along with everybody else, uh, you know, because of this uh, unnatural environment that we find ourselves in. But where, where do you see teacher training in general and professional development for teachers headed in, in the coming years? I cannot uh, emphasize that enough. I mean, in the, at the beginning of the pandemic, people were talking about oh, tools, or which synchronous meeting tool is better than the other. Uh, of course, teachers have learned this. Older teachers who are inexperienced with technology how to deal with that as well. And that creates a lot of burnout and lots of um, issues for them and for the students. And uh, going forward, I think professional development has to be um, part of the norm, Okay. It is as important, if more, if not more important, than the purchase of a particular technology. It is as important as the building of infrastructure, you know, because people have to learn to teach with technology or with a particular technology. As you mentioned, you know, we are using artificial intelligence, we are using data. Uh, all of this uh, have to be taught to people. I mean, teachers have to receive constant training. Uh, I see that sometimes professors receive a training at the beginning of the semester. I think it has to be ongoing. It has to uh, to be built into their professional development plan. I, I think this is fairly important. I, I, I'm, I'm happy to see, uh, in terms of the Chinese uh, professional development, that the learning centers or teaching and learning centers are set up right now. Uh, in the past, it's something unheard of. I, I work for a teaching and learning center, and I'm proud of it. It's a very good one. And I am I'm very surprised at the beginning that uh, there are not equivalent units in, in China because instructional designers, for instance, are housed under means electronic teaching office, okay, something like that, okay. It is, there is not a teaching and learning center. I'm housed under a teaching and learning center. So we not only help teachers design their instruction, we work with them in terms of their pedagogy, in terms of their teaching practices, in terms of the adoption of materials, all sorts of things. So we do not have all the expertise. We just uh, try to become a hub of knowledge, getting people invited to talk, uh, to exchange ideas, getting people to come together and making uh, sure that our uh, environment is hospitable and welcoming so that everybody just come here. And when people gather, which is something we miss in the pandemic, 
you, you know, there's lots of accidental learning going on, okay? And uh, it's not necessarily structured training, but people say, oh, I use this method, and there's lots of uh, innovation that happen as a result of talk in the lounge or at the uh, at the, the coffee machine coffee machine okay so i i, I miss that so we need to and I, we are we are going we are going back to to that state again uh, because we are kind of getting this under control no that's 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 great to hear uh berlin and that's a good uh good place for us to 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 stop on that hopeful note that uh you know we we will once again gather around a coffee machine around a water cooler and uh and yeah a lot a lot of informal learning happens in those uh, contexts and a lot of informal professional development. And I, and I guess that's something that, uh, you know, it, it's hard to replace with, uh, with technology. So uh, Berlin, thank you again for being on Wise Words. Thank you so much, Savaras. Have a good day. Andrew, uh, welcome back to, uh, to Wise Words. Thank you. Good to be good to be here. Um, what, what's your take on the on the conversation with with, with Berlin? We we touched on some interesting uh, and, and kind of highly varied issues on uh, on what's happening at the moment in uh, in China. What's your overall take? Well, I think the first thing is it's just really interesting to to throw a spotlight on that part of the world. I mean, obviously, China is an incredibly dynamic country. Um, there's a huge amount of kind of innovation and focus, of course, culturally. Um, the importance of education is really deeply embedded. I mean, you see it so much, you know, whether it's actually, for example, looking at things like PISA results for the system itself in China and elsewhere in Asia, Japan, Korea, and so on. Um, But also actually, interestingly, in Western countries where there are significant um, groups of those ethnic origins and how far they tend to outperform. So that whole kind of culture of the importance of education and the family focus and drive around it is really interesting to explore in more detail and i think um quite you know quite important as was being touched on uh, in your discussions the um, on the good side, I suppose, as it's uh, that recognition of the value, the importance of investing in, in education. On the downside, if we could put it that way, this intense focus on competition and performance and what implications that has in many ways, both in terms of the the mental health and stress of students, you know, kind of piling um, daytime classes with supplementary study in the evening and so on. Um, and what implications often in terms of a sort of fact-based approach perhaps to um, the sorts of things that can easily be tested in exams as opposed to some of the wider issues of creativity and so on that are really important for development and for life skills. So I think um, that's a really important sort of set of tensions that need to be explored. And and I think, you know, clearly I think China, Singapore as well, uh, Korea, Japan, it's something that's a growing debate at the moment. Have we been too focused on exams and more traditional fact-based, competence-based assessments at the expense of um, some of those wider skills. It, it is, I mean, it, it, it is interesting to see how that debate will, you know, will play out because it is, you know, it, it is the, the, I guess, you know, it's a form of meritocracy. So let's, let's use that term, this sort of meritocratic exam-based system for sorting, you know, talent is also very deeply rooted. I mean, I, I've, I've been listening to Michael Wood's uh, really excellent uh, new book on the history of China. It's called The Story of China, 
I don't know if you've come across it, but I would I would highly recommend it. And you know, the the, the sort of exam based system for selecting officers for the Mandronate goes back at least to the Song Dynasty, if not if not further back. So you know, we're talking here nine hundred A.D where you had a, a sort of formal exam-based system. So, you know, talking about things that are deeply rooted in the culture, this is, you know, this is one of them. And, and you know, as Berlin said during our discussion, he, you know, if you ask most Chinese, they'll tell you, yeah, it's a, it's a fair system. Fair in, in terms of, you know, c- compared to perhaps to, you know, to, to alternatives that, that, you know, can be gamed or where, again, I think as we uh, maybe discussed in, in uh, earlier conversations, where again the the haves will have a potentially greater advantage in you know ticking all the other boxes you know around you know whether it's an extracurricular or you know or kind of leadership opportunities or or, or whatever. So I, I am curious to see how um, how that plays out in in this part of the world. I was going to say yes. I mean, I, I wrote a piece recently actually, just looking at um, you know kind of one stage up, as it were, from school, the whole process of. Uh, interest in and recruitment into the public sector and particularly kind of elite roles in the public sector in different parts of the world. And of course, you're right, um, in China, the the kind of the whole process of a sort of meritocratic exam, which widened out uh, access uh, to the bureaucracy, as it were, in a positive sense, is historically very important. And we see, um, you know, variations on that theme, for example, in the Indian civil service um, with exams uh, in, of course, the UK, um, for instance. Um, and then, for example, in, in France, um, the, the downsides of, you know, the, the aspiration is excellent. Um, the potential downsides sides are also interesting. You know, if you look in France, where just recently uh, President Macron announced, at least symbolically, the abolition or the restructuring of the École Nationale d'Administration, you know, this was set up after the Second World War by de Gaulle precisely as as a way to kind of focus on merit and social mobility, um, to use the best and the brightest to rebuild uh, the state. And it had many things in its favour. But of course, the reality, as we've seen, you know, two to three generations later, and we see it in all education systems, it does tend to be elites that then perpetuate themselves. So you see a large number of the current cohorts, their parents also may well have gone through that same system. Um, And in the same way, I think, you know, I mean, the, the sad reality is that any form of exam always risks being open to gaming. Um, and so the fact is, you will see, you know, however much you attempt to sort of make some a system egalitarian, that, for example, in Asia, you'll see this huge investment by the households, the families that can afford to in supplementary tutoring Um and it's all designed essentially in order to perform well in these exams, and it's incredibly difficult. I mean, I've not, I've yet to see a, a system that can really tease out, you know, native underlying talent and can't be in some way drilled and prepared for. So there's a kind of multiple stages. There's the stage of kind of whether your, you know, your aspirations are there, which already arguably is sometimes seen as a, you know, Western parlance, a middle-class set of values. And then your ability with additional resources to mobilize and succeed in entering. So that's the first challenge. The second one is, um, you know, are the sorts of skills that are being identified in exams the sorts of things that are really required in today's and tomorrow's society? Again, take the French system, but also the Gaokao in China. I mean, these are exams based on 
you know, kind of hard skills around mathematics, for example, which clearly have an important value. But, you know, you say, let's say for a 30 or 40 year old public official is, you know, extreme elegance and and, and capacity in, uh, you know, trigonometry necessarily the right way to filter for skills in the same way as in medicine, for example. Again, you know, one has high competition, one tests for science, but, you know, as a doctor, don't you also need wider skills of empathy, for example? You clearly want to have a, yeah, you want to, you want a kind of competence level, but it's not clear that focusing on the highest performing in certain quite academic areas or areas that are easier to test will necessarily, you know, filter in the right way for the skill sets that are key. So I think that's a that's a sort of existential dilemma we see around the world, including in China, where, you know, this huge upsurge in the middle class and in aspiration and so on is driving, you know, it's great for the, the those rise to the top. It's much more challenging for those that don't. And incidentally, that's where I think, you know, you've seen this phenomenon I've reported on, for example, where, you know, you had this explosion of, um, for example, English and other international schools establishing themselves in China and indeed growing uh, recruitment by agents to um, bring Chinese students from high school who maybe aren't quite at that top level, who don't get into the most prestigious Chinese universities to then apply to universities in Europe, for example, or the US. Um, and so it creates all sorts of, you know, arguably slightly perverse incentives as well. How, how influential to the rest of the world do you think the outcome of that debate uh, in China will be? Um, well, I think I think it's really important because, of course, we're now seeing, you know, obviously there's huge amounts of migration and connections around the world. As I said, not only, um, you know, you've got, uh, let's say, Chinese families or other Asian families that move to different parts of the world or establish and maintain bonds to um, their forebears um, and their families, their extended families back in Asia. You've got that, as it were, shorter term, more recent flow, which just continues to grow of Chinese students, for example, applying, whether it's to um, schools or to higher education institutions or to spend times working and gaining experience in Western countries. So there's that sort of flow of people. And then, of course, you've got a growing trend that inevitably is following that with um, Chinese edtech companies, um, recruitment agents, um, resources that are also spreading globally. You know, a number of number of Chinese companies that have bought schools in the UK and the US, for example, or that have a sort of now a global reach through edtech platforms that might initially have been developed for mainland China, but are now being offered elsewhere, whether to Chinese diaspora or to, um, you know, for example, West Western students. So, I mean, I think that's something that's, you know, and clearly overall the extent of um, dynamism and uh, and focus and funding is creating a model that's not just relevant for the mainland, but, but for other parts of the world. And then, of course, I was going to say, sorry, finally, but I mean, you know, again, you've got then these trade-offs, tensions, for example, um, 
in some of the university systems, like you know, where there is so-called more marketization, more openness, and, and and even need now increasingly in a sort of cross-subsidized model in the UK, in Australia, in um, the US and Canada, for example, to explicitly recruit Chinese students. And so the intersections and the appetite to have students from abroad who often uh, will pay quite high tuition fees as well, and maybe subsidizing a domestic model. Um, you know, that's 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 a huge factor, I think. Yeah, no, I, I, I've often wondered as well whether, you know, as, as China's geopolitical uh, and, and economic weight increases um, in, in the world, and it's, it's in, you know, it, it, it's seen by more and more people as a, as a success story, whether to a certain extent it will begin exporting its education model much, you know, much as the UK and the and the US did in the in the sort of you know starting with the mid nineteenth century and all the way to the sort of present era where you know, to, to a certain extent the the prevailing education model, if you will, in the world is a is a sort of Anglo American slash Western model. You know, I, I wonder if we're going to start seeing you know a flow now coming in from the Far East if you know indeed those societies begin to be seen as you know as as succeeding um economically and geo geopolitically i, I don't know what you think about am i am i making too you know too much of a connection between education and 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 geopolitics here well, I think there's a few things, aren't there? I mean, one is, of course, the geopolitical context is, as we know, becoming rather more tense at the moment. So, you know, one could see um, slightly more of a standoff in in relations between China and the rest of the world that could have some influence on the um, the flows outwards, for example, of students. Um, we're already seeing it in terms of some degree of ambivalence or restriction on, for example, Western uh, companies or education systems inbound to China. So arguably, at least at the political level, there are some uh, you know, complications and twists in the road ahead. I think underlying that, there's clearly this huge surge nonetheless in the continuing aspirant uh, middle class that's growing in China. And I think um, there's clearly going to be a kind of dynamism from below, if you like, which would be hard to imagine will be drying up. And indeed, I think whatever the political games, um, I think, you know, kind of the Chinese authorities and, our, and indeed Western authorities see a value, if only as a sort of um, control on a pressure cooker environment domestically to permit a lot of those informal, um, you know, flows to continue. As to whether... Um, the Chinese education system per se is a model for the rest of the world. I mean, I think it, you know, as we've discussed, it has limitations. It's more focused on an elite. Um, you know, there's a lot of ambivalence about creativity in the system, about whether the subjects taught the right ones, about what happens to those who don't perform best, about the hot housing and mental health issues involved. Um, so I'm not sure necessarily the model per se has proved itself to be superior or even radically different in terms of what student learn, students learn and the structures of pedagogy. I think also a lot of what we 
know and understand about the best in Chinese education does tend to be focused on, you know, two or three of the big cities, Beijing, Shanghai in particular. You know, as we know, for example, the PISA results are basically essentially focused on Shanghai, one very successful city. And I think there's some great things to commend it. I've been there. I've seen, you know, this sort of huge social status and prestige and recognition and resourcing of teaching as a profession. Um, you know, kind of research, um, exchanges of best practices, the sorts of things that we've seen in some of the um, the better models in the West in countries like Finland as well. Um, how far we could say there's a kind of effective national model um, that's working for China, let alone that will be successfully exported elsewhere, I think is more open to debate. But as I say, I think, you know, it might be less the system overall than it is the movement of individuals and also the potential for looking at some of this expansion of um, technology and approaches that might actually be, you know, um, adding to the toolbox for teachers and school systems in other parts of the world. On, on the subject of technology, again, Berlin, I think, mentioned that uh, China is is embedding, in a sense, online teaching and preparing for an online education world within its within its five year plan <clears throat> have you seen have you seen that elsewhere have you seen the same kind of attention being paid you know to um, education technology you know at, at a sort of official level or or again is that something that's very um, germane to the to the sort of Chinese way of doing things and it, it's not sort of fair to draw parallels with uh, you know with with say the, the West well, I think, you know, yeah, I mean, one has to interpret it in multiple ways. I mean, clearly countries that have, you know, you know, like the Communist Party has a five-year plan or a 10-year plan. Of course, it's you know relatively easy to label that as a priority. We'll see in reality how far that is carried through and what the resourcing is and in what way. Um, other countries, of course, you know, all politicians talk about the importance of education around the world. There's no doubt, objectively, there are some huge differences in the levels of commitment of absolute spending or relative spending to total government um, investment around the world, for example, and very different levels of individual households out of pocket investment in education. So, I mean, clearly, I think the aspiration and the the reality of um, resourcing and priority is very high in China, but I think many other countries do it to some degree and in different ways. But I, mean, I think one thing that was very, you know, interesting in his remarks was that issue that, as we said, a lot of the dynamism and the kind of eye-catching initiatives that we're hearing, for example, out of China um, are driven by, you know, essentially largely private uh, technology companies. Um, and there clearly is a tension there between, you know, bluntly making money as opposed to um, pedagogical pedagogical excellence. Um, and, you know, it, you know, I mean, I, I think we discussed this before, but, you know, I often will get um, sort of um, proposals, pitches from ed tech companies, you know, making great claims about what they're able to deliver. Very often, actually, the evidence base and, you know, how far 
a very small sample of whatever they've tried to prove is a you know successful implementation of their technology is much more ambiguous and i think you know the more you go from as it were the platform technologies you know let's say online tutoring that enables a connection between humans i mean that clearly has a value and we're seeing the rollout of tutoring as part of the post covid recovery around the world when you start to get into more the space of ai or if you like the black boxes and the you know mysterious tech solutions that supposedly can um, improve comprehension ability of of students in particular subjects or areas of competence. I think um, it's much more ambiguous. And, you know, I've yet to see definitive scaled, um, rigorously tested um, interventions that really deliver. And I think, frankly, if they do, and, they, you know, it, we need to see the evidence. And at that point, policymakers should take heed and really try to ensure uh, equitable rollout of them. But I think a lot of it at the moment is as much, you know, speculative and driven by the profit mope. It is necessarily um, truly delivering improved outcomes for all. Yeah, ag- agreed. And I think that that's one of the big the big gaps, if you will, in edtech is the 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 lack of rigorous evidence and and maybe maybe that's just a factor that you know it, it's still very uh, a very nascent space and you know we haven't had you know the the ability to to you know conduct uh, long term long, longitudinal studies on on the impact of some of these interventions but I mean it's certainly a a space that Wise is is, is watching very carefully and we're, we're trying to do our bit with uh, you know with our edtech test beds that we're uh, uh, we're trying to set up here in the uh, Qatar Foundation uh, education city ecosystem. I think it's only one thing around that would be um, a reflection of, of, you know, standards and norms and ways to facilitate um, deeper dive, more rigorous and co- comparable interventions. I mean, it's interesting, you know, if we compare education with health, let's say, there, the whole culture, of course, is much more based on rigorous evidence. We've been seeing it most yep. recently with COVID vaccines, for instance, you know, as we know, um, giving out a medicine or a, a drug or a vaccine um, requires very strict regulatory approval because, you know, human lives are at stake, of course, and one needs to really very intensively test pre-launch. And then, as we've seen, for example, with reports about side effects with some of the vaccines more recently, you need to then follow up as you scale up these interventions in a much larger way around the world and rare side effects start to appear. And I think, you know, not necessarily that we should perhaps go quite as far in education, but we are talking about, you know, not just the Mm -hmm. immediate protection from illness or um, recovery from disease. We're talking about generational effects and children are the guinea pigs in this huge global educational experiment, if you like. So I think we certainly need to scale up um, some attempts to try to be a bit more rigorous, certainly ahead of um, governments investing in a lot of these new systems and approaches, but also because in the absence of any clarity or guidelines, parents, of course, understandably want the best for their children, but might be deceived into investing very substantial Mm -hmm. amounts out of pocket in things that don't necessarily deliver even for their own children let alone for the the wider good of society yeah and and, and may even actually have adverse consequences as well i mean uh, the, you know it's, it's one thing not to deliver but uh, you know a, as we're increasingly seeing with you know with with digital technologies there is a you know there is a dark side to you know to overuse and and overexposure to the to the digital space and again that's something that 
at WISE, we're, you know, we're looking into with, um, you know, one of our research efforts is on digital addiction, as I think a, a, a very real and growing concern around the world. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a really important area. And I think the more we have um, not only governments, but philanthropic organizations and others trying to take the big picture, uh, the better. Because I think, you know, one thing I'm focused on quite a lot at the moment is just thinking about that, how one, you know, why haven't a lot of these interventions, even those which are kind of, you know, not commercially driven, um, you know, they're driven by NGOs or kind of philanthropic organizations and so on. Why are they not able successfully to scale up across even a single system or country, let alone be replicated elsewhere in the world? So I think the more assessment, evaluation, coordination, reflection on those issues, the better. No, I I, I couldn't agree more, Andrew. Maybe that's a a good place for us to, uh, to conclude uh, today's discussion. Thank you again for being part of Wise Words, for sharing your uh, reflections, not just on the conversation, but also on you know other other things that are preoccupying you. Uh, and of course, a reminder to our listeners to to check out the uh, Financial Times excellent offer for for schools. Yes, thank you. And there'll be, you know, there's lots more exciting developments around that. I mean, obviously, this is available for free to students, uh, as long as they have a digital access, um, uh, you know, in a capacity in English globally. And we've got a whole series of new competitions as well that we're gearing up to, to launch around a number of issues of relevance to this next generation, including, uh, of course, sustainability and, and the climate. So, um, you know, do keep uh, tuned for ideas and, and we hope as many people as possible can participate and engage around all of that. Thank you, Andrew. Good to have you with us again. Thanks very much. Look forward to the next. This is Basim Hijazi, producer of the Wise Words podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in to the show where we discuss all things education with some of the world's leading thinkers and doers. What did you think of this episode? We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback, and you can reach out to us anytime on our social media channels, which you can find in the description. And of course, if you're new to the show, please do consider subscribing for more episodes just like this one. As Stavros mentioned in the intro, this season, we're going to be taking a look at some of the world's post-pandemic priorities for the future of education. We're in our third episode so far of the season, and we focus on the United States, India, and now China. So we hope you'll join us for the rest of the journey and check out some of the other ones if you've missed them. Stay tuned to our social media channels to be informed on when our next episode goes live, set to release in May 2021. If you're a Facebook user, do consider joining us for our next live show. We usually go live with the podcast and we answer any questions that may come our way. And then we bring it back to audio right here where you're listening right now. So do keep an eye on our social media channels to be informed when we go live next time. And finally... If you're listening on an iPhone or Mac, consider leaving us a review on Apple or iTunes because that really helps out the show and we'd really appreciate that. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in and hope to see you again next time on Wise Words.
Thank you so much, Stavros. Have a good day. Thanks. Thanks. You, you too. Okay. Yeah, I think I think we're okay, we're good. Okay. Great. Well, I'm, I'm so sorry for the uh, as I said, somebody's uh, oh no no something upstairs. I hope we just too uh, not too uh, uh, conspicuous in the recording. I, I, I don't know what Basim, if if uh, we we can uh, try to edit it out in uh, in you know when we republish this on on the but it yeah. wasn't it, I, I didn't find it too too bothersome too yeah okay no okay yeah well, that's good thank you so much it's uh, I really enjoyed it yeah okay thanks, uh, you thanks. take care and um, okay. again it's. Uh, it's uh, it's great to chat with you. Always learn a lot. So um, hopefully we can uh, do this again. Okay, I really enjoyed it. Take care, Stavros. Stay Thank well. You,